welcome everybody to Not So Famous Achievers. Weekly conversations with some of the world's most amazing but not so famous achievers on what they did and how they did it and what you can learn from their journey. With your hosts, Will Christ and Robert White. Hey guys. Hello to all. Uh, unfortunately, my dear friend Will Christ is not available for us today, so I am winging it alone. Uh, I'm what you got, so kind of get used to it and embrace the opportunity. I am delighted today to have a wonderful guest, an old friend and business colleague, Bob Albin. Bob, uh, I met because uh, while I was resident in Japan about a thousand years ago, I purchased the franchise for a company called American Sales Masters, delivering a series of very well done visual programs with some of the most famous sales experts, motivational experts in the world. Uh, we translated those into Japanese and over 1800 companies over time purchased that pro program. So I got to know the two founders of American Sales Masters, Hal Kraus and our very own Bob Albin. And, uh, uh, and so just incredible, incredible businessman, incredible family guy, incredible athlete, incredible uh, community activist. And we can talk about any and all of those things. Bob, welcome to Conversations with the Not-So-Famous Achievers. Thank you, Robert. Good to see you again. Uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, you know, being back in Colorado and connecting with some old friends is really a delight for me. And that's a little bit of a surprise to me because I, and, and you know this, I'm a bit of a lone wolf, you know, in that way, maybe a typical entrepreneur. <laughs> What's always impressed me about you is your ability to be in relationship with people and in a purposeful way, not, not just uh, exchanging sports stories and stuff like that. You're usually up to something. Well, that's uh, one of the things that kept my former partner and I, Hal Krauss and me, um, together, we enjoyed uh, playing jokes on each other and our office environment was always fun. And everybody that worked uh, for us felt the same way. And we had a, we decided that work should be fun as well as uh, uh, effective. I've mentioned to you personally that your, what I would call practical jokes, the way you often had fun, were innovative. Uh, I mean, incredibly clever, required uh, considerable expense, actually, and uh, planning. Uh, I remember one about a club in London and getting into it. Uh, <laughs> that was particularly yes. clever. Uh, the famous King Tut on your lawn. Yes, that was a good one. That was the one pulled on me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the stories kind of go on and on. You know, it's it's interesting, and I think something that our listeners might be interested in is I mean, you had a long personal relationship and still do with your your former partner, Hal. But you also had an incredible working relationship. You know, the the joke part of it for franchisees, you know, where we're interacting with the two of you in different ways, was that Hal was this guy that just created chaos. And you were the guy that came around and calmed the waters. But I'm sure there was more to the relationship than that. But what, you know, a lot of... Uh, a lot of our listeners are in partnerships or have key people in their organization for many years that they work very closely with, like a, a formal partner. How did you make it work all those years? I mean, it's an incredible success story, actually. 
well, you know, we, we met when we were both still in college. He was at the University of Wyoming. I was at the University of Missouri. And we were both selling pots and pans to single working girls, which is a oh. good job for single guys. And um, <laughs> the, uh, the owners of the company decided that the two of us might get along. So they introduced us and we ended up uh, becoming best buddies. And uh, I worked in Wyoming with him sometime. He worked in Missouri with me sometimes. And uh, and we ultimately became close friends and became business partners. The, I think the secret to our relationship uh, that goes back now some 60 years, we've never had a disagreement. We've never had a, an argument wow. is that we are so different. And going back to what oh. you said a moment ago, we seldom traveled together overseas. We had offices in, I think, 18 countries. Uh, but somebody had to stay back at the office and make sure the company kept running. So one of us would go overseas while the other stayed back. First time we took a trip together, I believe we were going to Japan. We were in uh, San Francisco at uh, a hotel getting ready to take our morning flight to Japan. And I turned to Hal and I said, Hal, you need to go out. Uh, make some people mad because I haven't been busy enough and I don't have anything to do. <laughs> it's kind of the, the crux of our relationship. <laughs> well, that was a creative one, you know. <laughs> well, you, you definitely calmed my waters occasionally and, and it was much appreciated. <laughs> uh, you know, I've often shared with people that, you know, that was for me, that was a, certainly a successful business franchise. Plus, I got to know a lot of really fascinating people. When you hosted the reunion at at uh, Cherry Creek Golf Club, am I saying that right? Is it Cherry, Cherry Creek Hill. or Cherry, Cherry Hills. Hills? Cherry Hills. You know, it was an incredible event. What I was struck by was the number of people that had been in Sales Masters around the world and around America who were now hugely successful. I mean, the success stories in that room were mind-blowing. I'm one of those people that I look back on it and I learned so much that I didn't know about, well, certainly business to business selling, something I had never done. And I, I just, because I didn't know anything, I followed the sales master's method with great success, you know, and, and yeah. we, the success in that room, I'm sure you're in, still in touch with some of those people, but. You know, the, what, the largest steakhouse in Fort Worth, as an example. Yes, the, yeah. Well, you know, the, the secret to that was you don't hire idiots to begin with. You know, you go out and you hire good people. Uh, and we hired mostly young people in their mid-20s, something like that. Some of them had had a year or two with IBM or Xerox or an insurance company or something like that. And they'd already proven that they were disciplined and uh, had good interpersonal skills and, and uh, a good work ethic. And so we started with uh, good material. And then uh, for the uh, people who don't know what American Sales Masters did, we were one of the first sales and management training firms uh, in existence. And so our people were out calling on owners and managers of businesses trying to offer them sales and management training services. And so our people had to go out and make a lot of cold calls, face a lot of resistance, call on all different kinds of businesses from all different kinds of industries. And so it expanded 
their personal confidence and their experience and their knowledge. And you do that for a few years, as you and I both did. And uh, whether it's for two or three or five years or 20 years, gain a lot of confidence and a lot of knowledge and some wisdom along the way. And those people, when they went on their way to make their own businesses or something, were going to be successful no matter what they did. And we're delighted to follow the success of, of all of those people. And the friendship still exists. Wow, it's been amazing. You know, I remember at some point, and I, I don't recall if it was Hal or you, told a story about how, and I certainly have run into this in my business over the years since then, so it's a valuable lesson for me, to be careful about chasing the whale, you know, the big sail, and work at it and work at it and work at it. And in the meantime, you don't do anything else because uh, you think you're going to get that big sale. And I remember a story about one of the salespeople in the U.S., and this was told at one of your international meetings that I was lucky enough to attend, where one of the salespeople was really excited about one of the automotive manufacturers, Ford or General Motors, one of those. Oh, it was hell, because he said to this guy, what floor is this office? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the guy said, well, actually, it's it's... It's in the lower levels. It's like B1 or something. I you know? remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and Hal said, well, then it's not a sale. It's not going to be a sale. Because <laughs> you could tell by where the guy's office was in the building. Well, I, you know, that sounds like a silly story in some ways. But from that point on, I kind of started watching. If I'm calling well, but you, somebody, you knew that he was not the ultimate decision maker. Right. <laughs> it wasn't on just, the executive floor, was he? <laughs> just by the location of his office. It changed my awareness and, you know, saved me some wasted time. So, uh, but there were so many lessons like that. So many. One of the biggest lessons that I think we all had is uh, after years of conducting big sales rallies, we called them congresses where we brought in famous speakers and we'd have a couple of thousand people in the audience and started making audio and visual uh, material of those same uh, experts. And then after doing that for a number of years, we decided to start going after bigger contracts. And that was a real uh, educational experience for us because suddenly we were calling on the Fords and General Motors and big life insurance companies and so forth and talking about major uh, sales and it it took um, some real discipline to learn how to change your focus and to understand that the sales cycle was a little bit longer and that the importance of getting to the ultimate decision maker was life or death when you're going after a big contract. Yes, uh, and again, I I just I learned so much. I've always been so grateful, and also I made some great friends, especially. You know, when you live in a, a, a very foreign place like Tokyo and you get to come back a couple of times a year and hang out with some really exciting, excited and productive and forward focused people. You know, Ron Tate is still a, a dear friend. Uh, yeah. we, we talk regularly. Uh, and I'm trying to think of uh, Mike, who lives in Cleveland. Mike, and he, Mike Frank. You know, who books speakers all over the world now. Oh, yeah. He's addition. made a big uh... Uh, big speakers bureau, a very successful, um, and, and a, a wonderful, I would say, giving guy. Yes. You know, he's 
He's so generous. And so it's just some very special friendships made and so much learning. I mean, you're in business to make money and, and contribute to clients, but you did have fun with it. I had fun with it. Uh, it's a, a well, you were sort of, uh, you're sort of uh, an example for a lot of people in our company because you struck out, went overseas to a foreign country, took uh, American technology, our sales uh, skills and, and techniques, and went over there and made a tremendous impact in Japan and other countries. Uh, where we were still working in Iowa and California and New York and places like that. So you did a great well, job. It, you know, one of the things we teach in our work is is to play the game of life for mutual benefit, you know, to play win-win. And that was definitely a win-win relationship. I think for me, always, it was that that central, unique selling point of American Sales Masters was a work of genius because Truly, if you wanted to hire a Jay Douglas Edwards or a Zig Ziglar or or Bill Gove, I mean, you were talking about big money, twenty, thirty thousand dollars, and that was thirty years ago. Well, uh, Doctor Norman Vincent Peale and a Paul Harvey and a Earl oh, Nightingale, yeah, those were big, big names. Probably couldn't hire them for any money at that point in their careers. Putting them on uh, on film originally and then video for twenty to thirty minutes and deliver their best material and professionally produced and incredible uh, value to the clients that we serve. So it was always something I was proud of. Uh, well, there, there is some advantage to being young and dumb, you know, because we were, <laughs> we were in our mid twenties and late twenties and early thirties when we were doing all of that. And we didn't know whether we were failing or succeeding as long as we were getting done what we wanted to do. That was where we were headed, and uh, we didn't have a fear of failure at that point, which uh, got us in a lot of doors that we wouldn't have made otherwise. After selling the company, there are two things that I know about you that are both significant. One is your career with Western Indian and First Data, but also you were, and I, I, I'm going to say this because I don't think you would, uh, you're the prime mover for an airport that I use almost weekly. Denver International Airport. I mean, one of the, I would say, top three in the country, maybe in the world. I don't know. It's an incredible facility. I'm curious about what it was like. And it's one thing to sell a sales training program or a management program. It's another thing to deal with the politics and the and the zoning and the community support and the huge amount of money that was involved. Uh, how did you get involved? And I mean, that must have taken an incredible commitment. Well, I was uh, I was on the Denver Chamber of Commerce board. I was in my late 30s, I think, and I was traveling all over the world every week, as we were talking about earlier. And so I got to see a lot of airports, and we had Old Stapleton Airport, uh, which was an old facility in a residential neighborhood, a lot of risk of noise and potential accidents and so forth. And so at a chamber board meeting uh, one month, I brought up the issue of the need to obsolete that facility. And the next thing I knew, I'd been appointed by the board to look into the issue. So I formed a committee of uh, executives from around the state. We spent a year studying it, came out with a recommendation. This was in 1978 uh, that we had to replace Stapleton by the year 2000. 
And uh, that followed with a site selection study and economic development study and a whole bunch of things. And uh, the next thing I knew, we were selecting a site out uh, uh, east of uh, Denver. And I'd been appointed by the mayor, uh, Federico Pena, to chair the design committee for the new airport. And we had a couple of public elections, one in an adjoining county, Adams County, to allow us to annex 53 square miles, and then another election in Denver to have us uh, authorized to uh, to annex that land. So we en- ended up annexing 53 square miles. And think about that in the uh, Great Plains, Indian artifacts, uh, all sorts of historic things, and uh, we were able to do that. Uh, against uh, uh, people in the community who said, well, I know how to get to Stapleton and I know where to park and I know where my gate is and it's only five miles from my house and you're going to make me go 25 miles out in the country and it's going to bankrupt Denver and all of that. And we had a columnist named Gene Amel at the Rocky Mountain News who wrote a column about every week about how it was going to bankrupt the city. In fact, it wouldn't because it wasn't paid for by uh, the general fund of Denver. It was paid for with bonds, uh, revenue. It was uh, a political nightmare. And, of course, the adjoining county, Adams County, uh, was a little jealous of Denver building this huge facility. But it has been a huge success. It is the single biggest economic driver in the region, period. Uh, It hires thousands of people. And uh, it is a prime mover for causing companies to move their headquarters or branch offices to Denver. It's a major facility, and it was a thrill for me as a volunteer to spend 17 years working on a project like that. I loved it. Well, I'm kind of happy that I was stuck abroad because you couldn't enroll <laughs> me in anything. I'd have been but happy. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm grateful. I mean, it's a fantastic airport, and, and it just works. And I remember, I, because I would take uh, the Denver Post or the Rocky Mountain News, even when I'm abroad, I mean, the resistance was huge. Yet people would ignore that if you got, you know, if you get four inches of snow in, in New York City, it shuts down the whole city. Four inches of snow in Denver is nothing. And yet it would kill the old Stapleton because the runways were too close, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's right. So they... It would go down to being a one airport, Cowtown airport. You know, it, it was in addition to being shabby, let us say. I'm, I'm trying to think of a polite word. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, it was 50 years old at that yeah. time. Well, when I got to be 50, I started getting a little bit shabby also. So I understand that. that part. <laughs> <laughs> That's what people say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but what a game. And. I wish, I mean, I think I've done some things uh, for in in terms of public service and charitable efforts, but the idea of spending 17 unpaid years on a project that difficult makes me start to wonder about your your mental health. (laughs) Well, you know, that's right. And during that time, I had a uh, uh, consulting company when I was uh, seeking, you know, billable hours. And so every hour you spent was hundreds of dollars that you couldn't spend. But I'm a firm believer that uh, 
you know, when I got out of college, I thought my working career would be the highlight of my life. And I was surprised to learn that uh, my involvement in civic activities, not just the airport, but a lot of other things, uh, were equally important to me um, compared to my uh, actual career. And I made as many friends through uh, becoming involved in junior achievement or the Denver Chamber of Commerce or any of a number of things uh, as I did in business. And I'm sure some of that led to some income, but still, well, sure. when you become, you know, when, when, when you make, uh, when you make uh, acquaintances and they need help, they have somebody to come to. But you, if you do it for that reason, uh, people will avoid you like the plague when you're at a board meeting or something, if they know that you can <laughs> try to sell them an insurance yes. policy or something like that. Well, look, we're going to take a short break. And then when we come back, I would like to talk a little about your moving into a more conventional role in American business and certainly in a, in a very famous company. Uh, we've been talking to Bob Alvin, but right now, uh, let's uh, turn things over to Paul and find out uh, if we can sell some stuff. <laughs> Well, we're going to give you one quick thought here that uh, plays into what we've been talking about here today. Our two hosts have lived extraordinary lives and been extraordinary entrepreneurs, and Robert White, certainly one of them. He mentors extraordinary entrepreneurs and executives just like you, people who want better results from their leadership performance. He shows them how to turn those results into increased personal joy and satisfaction as well. Robert founded and led two large training industry success stories. He's been there and done that, and his experience will help you find and achieve that extraordinary success you seek in your life. So why wait? Reach out and see what Robert can do for you today. Just email him at robert at extraordinarypeople.com, robert at extraordinarypeople.com, and start living the extraordinary life you've earned. Does your company have a clear vision? Do you have the right people in the right seats? Are you consistently getting the results you want and enjoying the journey? If not, consider EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. EOS is a set of simple concepts and practical tools used by more than 100,000 companies around the world to clarify, simplify, and achieve their vision. Schedule your free 90-minute meeting with an EOS implementer at eosworldwide.com today. That's eosworldwide.com. And now back to our show. Bob, how did you, uh, after being an entrepreneur and then being a, uh, actually a double entrepreneur, I guess, or serial entrepreneur, as they say, uh, and then all of that civic involvement, you ended up in a fairly conventional Fortune 500 company. Uh, how did all that happen? Well, it was a result of my consulting business. I had a consulting firm where I, I worked with uh, executive management from companies of all um, industries, and I helped them with sales and sales management issues. And one of those clients for about 10 years was First Data Corporation. And I worked with the uh, heads of all of their branches, their not branches, but their uh, divisions, and they had companies all over the United States. And so I would travel around and work with them on a regular basis. And the CEO always tried to hire me. And I said, you know, I don't, I don't want to work for anybody. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I've never worked for anybody. And he kept after me. And finally, one day he said, what if I bought your 
company, would you then come over and come to work? And I said, well, you know, consulting companies don't have a lot of uh, intrinsic value. It's just the principle. Uh, and he said, I don't care about that. Uh, give me a number. And if I can do it, I'll do it if you'll come over here and work. And so a week or two later, I went in and I wrote five things down on a three by five card. How much money, how many options, uh, you know, how much salary for my five consultants, things like that. And he looked at it for about 15 seconds and he said, I can do that. Do we have a deal? And I and he stuck his hand across the, the, the desk and I said, Yes, we do. <laughs> and so that's how I ended up there. And uh, I, I, there was a little trepidation because, as you said, I'd been an entrepreneur and suddenly this was a Fortune 500 company. And that brings politics and, you know, complexity. But what I found was it was a very entrepreneurial company. And, uh, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, uh, you know, starting a business, if you want to buy um, you know, a, a copier, you got to make a major decision because it costs money. But when you're with a Fortune 500 company, if you want a copier, you just tell somebody to go get one. And uh, <laughs> so resources help a lot. Uh, so I, I started there, and the first thing I did was run a, one of their divisions, which was uh, MoneyGram, which is a worldwide money transfer company. And I didn't know anything about money transfer, but the, all of my direct reports did. And so that was a, an interesting experience. And then I went over, we bought Western Union, which was the oldest, largest uh, money transfer company in the world. And um, so I went over to that side and we spun off MoneyGram. And so I spent uh, most of the rest of the time with them uh, running their, their uh, operation here in North America and uh, as chief operating officer and uh, it was a great experience for me i i came away from there with a lot of friends learned a lot that i would have never been able to learn in my entrepreneurial role before it's quite a change in my career wow on that three by five card uh, were some of the requests more less monetary and more style or 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 cultural uh, no, I, um, they were pretty pragmatic, you know, how much money, how many stock shares, uh, what title for my consultants who would come over and what their salary would be and that sort of thing. Because I knew the CEO well, um, because I'd worked with him for, for 10 years mm, and I trusted him. He was a terrific uh, guy and one of the smartest men I've ever known. And, uh, so I, I didn't have any concerns about that. And maybe I was too dumb to realize that maybe it would have, <laughs> it was not a good idea. But it turned out that I had no uh, uh, no problems or disagreements at all over there. It was a great experience for me. Maybe without using the word even, you knew the culture uh, and you knew it intimately. So I guess you well, wouldn't have to ask. That's right. I did. I had done a lot of speeches and workshops and one-on-one -on -one consulting with them and uh, and I did know uh, the culture well. And uh, it was a pretty entrepreneurial culture for a Fortune 500 company. You know, we started a lot of divisions and, um, uh, you know, grew them from scratch. And uh, you had to make your own decisions. And when, when you started the division, it was on your head to go make it work. They gave you the resources. You had to make it work. 
I think you're aware that I ran someone else's training company. It was my baptism by fire, uh, the yeah. old mind dynamics company yeah. for four years. And when I left and launched LifeSpring, I learned a lesson there through failure that I now teach and I now work with entrepreneurs and, and executives on that very same thing. It's what I learned through a massive and embarrassing failure, which is when I started LifeSpring, I had an assumption, even though I didn't have the words like culture. Well, you know, most of the people that I attracted initially were former Mind Dynamics staff. They all worked for me. We were all excited. We were all impressed with what uh, what these trainings could do for people. And we were young and excited and a little dumb, maybe, <laughs> probably. And uh, uh, But what I learned was that what I, uh, you know, there's a, a Zen expression that fish don't describe water very well, that, you know, whatever you're swimming in, you don't, you don't see it, yeah. feel it, know about it. And what I, what I came to learn, even though I didn't have the words at the time, was in my dynamics, Alexander Everett, the founder and the chairman, my boss, had set up a culture that, uh, that was win-win, that was in service to the graduates. You know, I remember, you know, and again, I just didn't notice it at the time, but I would come to him with some marketing idea or some expansion idea. You know, we ended up in seven countries and and a pretty successful business, made a lot of money and served a lot of people, created uh, in some ways, my dynamics created that human potential movement training industry. All these companies came out of it, uh, Est and Landmark and Psy and and uh, and LifeSpring and my company in Asia all came out of Mind Dynamics and but he uh, he never talked about purpose he never talked about vision he never talked about values he lived them yeah. you know he was he was the water we were swimming in and we I just wasn't aware of it and I go to LifeSpring and it, almost instantly there's all this discord among people that had worked for me for years, you know, and, and we built my dynamics together. Uh, and uh, what I found out is that if you don't, if you're not able to language and communicate purpose and vision and values in this kind of fast paced world that we live in and have been living in for some time, boy, you can get in a lot of trouble. And, and even if you have a good product and, and good people and, and good pricing and all, you know, all of those kind of more logical, rational things. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that worries me today about the pandemic and so forth is uh, the loss we may have in culture within our companies because people have started working remotely and they like it. They've got more freedom and so forth. And some are going to be reluctant to go back. And companies have found that they can reduce the cost of their office space by not having so many desks and so forth. And um, that uh, that may make economic sense. But one of the things that keeps people attached to their employer is the interpersonal relationships that they have of the people around them and the culture that exists there. And we were talking about having fun in our previous business. Uh, that's what caused people to come to work. They knew it was not going to be threatening. They knew it was going to be fun. They knew they were going to work hard. Um, but if they were working remotely, that would all be missing. And I'm afraid that uh, we're going to suffer some from that before this pandemic is over. 
uh, there's a lot of wisdom in what you just said, and I I agree 100. I uh, I I see the advantages of virtual workplaces. I mean, they're obvious, yeah. and uh, but boy, that that magic special sauce that comes from uh, getting beyond the uh, coffee maker conversation, which happens in many companies when you find out that somebody's wife has contracted a serious illness, when you find out that they're struggling with a teenage kid and, and drugs, when you, and you do, and you know, I don't think you do that online. I think that comes maybe after work hours or maybe on a break uh, where you find out who people are as human beings. And then if you've got an organization that's got a little, you know, slush fund for employee loans or can get where you can contribute a couple of hours a day of your time to help them take some time off to visit a sick relative. You know, those, uh, I think even the media has never really figured out what happens in organizations. I mean, the amount of, of personal help that people get from their companies, not always, you know, there's some real hard ass places. I, I acknowledge that, but boy, the stories go on and on of people helping people coming to the kind of coming to the rescue. It's mostly done quietly by people that are quiet, you know, yeah, and right. they, they just, they just do it. Well, and, and, it, and, it, and it builds a culture. You never forget that when that happens for you. And it builds because of, I always say uh, relationships are built through shared experiences. And if you and yes. I share a tragic experience, we have a bond that is almost unbreakable. If we share a huge success, then we have a bond that's almost unbreakable. And that happens on a daily, weekly, monthly basis when you're working together for a company. And um, an example of that is uh, Hal Krauss, my former partner. Uh, we haven't been partners for 25 years or something, but we were still best friends and we still have lunch almost every week. And, uh, you know, we get together with uh, him and his wife and uh, so forth. And my a longtime secretary who later became vice president of the company, uh, Sharon Corcoran. I talked to her this week, um, you know, and we haven't worked together in years. But, you know, you make those kind of lasting relationships. You paid a while ago. And Jim Mullins and so many of the people that oh, were, yes. were still good friends. Uh, you do know, of course, that the that the rumor was that Sharon really ran the company. Well, it's probably true. Uh, do you know? <laughs> I'll tell you another of our of our tricks that we did. Hal always traveled with a, a catalog case, you know, one of these big cases when he went overseas. I know, I know it well. You know all that, <laughs> and we always accuse him of never uh, opening it to get stuff out of it. He just carried it. The <laughs> so one time after he left uh, for the evening and he was leaving town the next morning, Sharon and I took everything out and put bricks in the bottom of his catalog case <laughs> and put one tape recorder and a few tapes on the top of it. And he went on a trip uh, through Asia and Australia and so forth and came back and never noticed it, except that it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one I hadn't heard, but it's, it's just true. Um, I would love to see, uh, I guess, more communication about culture and how you create it and, and, and have it be more honored in the in the literature in the in the trainings. I know you always focused on it and you lived it, 
uh, and I've I've tried to do the same, but I think I don't think it gets the attention that it deserves. You know, this that expression that culture eats strategy for breakfast has been credited to a lot of different people, including Peter Drucker. But I don't know where it really came from. But there's a lot in that simple sentence that that it is actually more important than strategy and a lot of other things. Well, you know, one of the principles, founding principles of American Sales Masters was an effort to try to elevate the image of the professional salesperson. And that had to do a lot with culture and ethics and integrity. And people in those days thought that selling was a scam and that uh, it was all high pressure and that sort of thing. And one of our objectives was to try to let people truly understand that it's not just uh, selling for money. It's, it's, it is a cultural thing. It does have integrity tied to it. And no matter whether you're a public accountant or an attorney, you still have to sell because you have to bring business in the front door in order to survive as an entity. And you have, in order to do that um, successfully over a, a long period of time, um, you have to do it with integrity and you have to have culture. Uh, I don't remember having uh, big disagreements in our home office and people not liking one another um, because I, I, we wouldn't tolerate that and we didn't have it. it when I started uh, selling salesmasters in Japan, we did have one problem in our office, which was it's a, you know, it, even now it's still a very structured society, but back then it was really structured. And then we're hiring these kind of people that couldn't get a job anywhere else. I mean, because that's all we could get. So they're a little bit odd in that way. <laughs> and then uh, suddenly they are uh, making more money than most of their peers. They are winning trips to the United States, which at that time, that was a really big deal to yeah. get to go to the U.S. And they never and all, yeah. yeah. Right. And then they come and you guys have set up, you know, all of these fun things and business things and trips. And, uh, you know, I remember almost drowning on a raft trip in uh, Vail uh, <laughs> because not because of the, the rapids, but because of the buckets of water being poured on the boats by the other boats, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so all of that is great. And, and our sales force was so motivated, small, but motivated. But it started creating a problem in the office. You know, the 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 girls and the guys that were administering the company because uh, they were jealous. Oh, I bet. Now, they would never say, you know, they wouldn't say that they were jealous. They'd say it's not fair that these guys get the trips and all of that. And we had a client uh, uh, who was extremely conversant about Japanese culture, was fluent in Japanese, an American guy. And I took the problem to him and he told me a story. He said that he had first come to Asia uh, as a civilian contractor for the U.S. Army uh, or excuse me, the U.S. Navy in Vietnam. So they had private companies that handled all of the logistics for that war effort. And uh, those those supplies were uh, run up and down those uh, waterways with barges. And the barges were captained by Americans who were subject to the U.S. labor union rules. 
And those rules, those rules were that if you're in a war zone, you get double pay per hour. You know, they already make pretty good money. They're captains of, of a tugboat. But it got doubled because they're in a war zone. And then it got increased because they would have to, you know, once you get out there, it's not nine to five. You know, right. you don't you don't quit at five. You take the boat to wherever you're going. So they were cutting. Uh, my friend ran this accounting department. This is free computer. 400 people with lots of slips of paper. And uh, he said he came in the office one day and 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 realized that they, it's like warfare because they're they're writing these huge checks to these captains and everybody's angry about it. And uh, so he didn't know what to do about it. And so he's just sitting on it, you know, not taking any action. And then one day he came in the office, this dead silent, like funereal, if that's a word. <laughs> you know, <It> is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he checked around on what was going on and found out that the night before, one of their tugboats had taken uh, a rocket into the wheelhouse, killing everybody aboard. And he said nobody complained after that about the big, the big checks to the captains. I'll bet that changed their mind. Yeah. <laughs> but what, one of the things we found in terms of cultural, that people need to know that rejection, which they all avoid, is painful. And salespeople are getting rejected every day, every hour, if they're doing a good job. I found the same thing with our trainers. You know, they they have this kind of glamorous thing getting up in front of three, four hundred people and everybody clapping and hugging and all that. What they don't know is that same trainer goes back to his room and watches Romanian soccer on ESPN two. You know, it, it's a lonely job traveling around the country. I mean, you've done that <laughs> away from your family, away from your friends. Uh, well, the worst to uh, contribute. The worst uh, example of rejection. In selling I've ever, ever heard was from Hal Krauss's brother, John Krauss, who managed our office in Chicago. And he called on somebody in Chicago one time and he was pushing kind of hard to get him to agree to something. And the guy pulled open his desk drawer, reached in, brought out a pistol and laid it on, on the top of the desk. And he said, I said no. And John said, yeah, I heard that. <laughs> and that's a, made a quick exit. <laughs> that is that's rejection. A, that's a great rejection story. Look, we're going to wrap this thing up. Bob, I, I so appreciate our uh, a long friendship. I so appreciate knowing somebody that I love and, re and respect and admire. Uh, it's just a blessing in, in my life. Uh, I think what you said today about culture, and about the pandemic and the resulting remote work stuff. I think that's that's an area of real wisdom and a real contribution. Is there something else you'd like to add to, to wrap things up today? No, I'd just like to say how proud uh, Hal and I are of what, what all you've done, because you're known around the world. And uh, I was put back in touch with you through a mutual friend uh, of ours, Doak Jakeway. And uh, we're proud of, of what you've done, and I've uh, uh, valued that friendship as well. So I'm glad to be with you, and thank you for including me. Well, it's, it's, it's been a special treat. Thanks to all for listening. And remember, uh, every week there is a conversation with a not-so-famous uh, entrepreneur, and we forgot one thing. I want to congratulate you on being named to the Colorado Business Hall of Fame and uh, the ceremonies in January. I hope I can be there. 
Thank you very much. All the best. Well, there you have it. Another great example of why you got to tune in. Overhear some conversations with maybe some not so famous but real achievers like our guest today. Right here in Orange County's only community radio station, octalkradio.net. Streaming live from our studios here at the University of California, Irvine's Beale Applied Innovation Center.